welcome to Carrying on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Caring on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Caring on the Go for August and September of 2022. I'm your host, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from Caring for the Ages, the news magazine from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. With every new issue, we welcome Caring for the Ages editor-in-chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some key articles. In this episode, we'll be highlighting the August-September issue of Caring for the Ages. Dr. Gallick is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice within the Shepherd Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Beth, welcome back to Caring on the Go. Thanks, Carl. It seemed like a long time, but I guess it really hasn't been. Nope, nope. Well, I remember when summers used to last forever and those days are long gone. So I guess so. <laughs> anyway, so we'll kick off today's session by talking about the front page top article by reporter Christine Kilgore about long COVID in post-acute and long-term care settings, uh, where she talked to Diane, Dr. Diane Sanders-Cepeda and other experts on the topic. So I learned something new from this piece, and I will start using the ICD-10 code U09.9 for patients with presumed long COVID symptoms. But my observation has been that in our already frail population, sometimes it may be hard to say whether it's just the natural progression of their other conditions versus something specifically caused by the virus. What are your highlights from this article, Dr. Gallen? Sure, Carl. So a couple of the things I really liked about this article is um, I, I liked Diane's feedback about um, call rather than just calling it long COVID, uh, emphasizing the post-acute sequela of COVID. Um, mm. I, I thought that that was helpful and identifying that um, we really lack clear definitions, but um, we're looking with that post-acute sequela of uh, having onset of greater than four weeks. Uh, with long COVID, uh, having the World Health Organization describe those long-term effects uh, being even longer with three months. Um, some of the other things is there's a lot we still don't know about this condition. Um, a lot of the research that has been done has only really focused on community-based samples of older adults. Mm. Um, but we do know that the prevalence is higher in older adults, um, at least those who are community dwelling, than it is in younger individuals. So about one in four older adults 
um, present with post-acute sequela of COVID or long COVID, um, whereas for younger individuals, it's about one in five. Uh, and Diane, I think, did a wonderful job of really kind of having a call to actions, um, calling on clinicians to make sure we're using that code that you mentioned earlier, Carl, um, so that this condition can be identified um, and, and looked at really on a, a national level. Uh, the, um, some of the other experts in the article um, talked about some of the most common syndromes that they saw. Um, so one was really rapid cognitive and functional decline among those previously diagnosed with dementia. Mm -hmm. And it was really described as almost like a subsyndromal delirium. And Michelle Bellantoni talked about um, having interventions implemented by occupational therapists, recreation, medicine, nursing, et cetera. So it really takes um, an entire team. Also the impact of um, malnutrition and weight loss and frailty and just chronic conditions that before COVID, before the uh, resident acquired COVID were, might have been difficult to manage, but now they were even more difficult to manage and stabilize. Right. Yeah. With no, uh, no visitors being allowed for a lot of that time frame, And I saw a lot of failure to thrive and I, you know, hard to say how much of that might've been from uh, loss of enjoyment of eating from uh, loss of uh, taste and smell also. So I think with the lockdowns, we had that, but now that places are really opening back up, but we're still continuing to see COVID infections, mm. I, we're still seeing some of those things in terms of the subsyndromal delirium and kind of that failure to thrive that isn't totally related, I think, to that more brief uh, time of, of um, uh, no visitors and those type of things. Um, they had um, through a, a, an interview Christine did um, over the internet with Dr. Deeks, who's part of the NIH Recover program. He talked kind of about a theory of a virus associated chronic inflammation that could potentially lead to accelerated aging. Um, and that that's why some of these conditions may be uh, more challenging to treat post COVID for some of the residents. So um, also, I didn't know that there were really um, significant skin manifestations. And um, Victoria Knowles, um, who's an advanced practice nurse, um, talked about some of those changes. So if you get a chance, um, check it out. Uh, Diane had some great points also about um, longer times needed for rehab um, and you know consideration of palliative options as long as it's consistent with the, with the patient's wishes. Yeah, great. Well, I think there's a lot we still have yet to learn, and I'm, I look forward to more papers, more research about our care setting and, and how, uh, you know, these long-term sequelae of COVID are manifesting themselves. So the next article, also on our front page, is by Dr. Leah Watson, who chairs AMDA's Behavioral Health Advisory Council, and this is about behavioral health integration, or BHI, in post-acute and long-term care. And uh, full disclosure, I come from a family of mental health professionals, including my dad and a sister who are psychiatrists, so uh, please don't judge. Uh, and I actually grew up wanting to be a psychiatrist, so also please don't judge. And, you know, of course, working in our care setting, I sometimes feel like I am a psychiatrist. And Dr. Watson points out that 60 to 80% of nursing home residents 
do have at least one psychiatric diagnosis, uh, at least if you count dementia as a psychiatric diagnosis. But our traditional model of having a regular doc treat medical diagnoses and a psychiatrist or other mental health professional to treat psychiatric diagnoses may not be the best model, right? So to some extent, it goes against the notion of holistic person-centered care, you know, the kind of care we want to give by creating this false dichotomy between medical and psychiatric. So Beth, please tell me more about what Dr. Watson is talking about here with this BHI concept. Sure. So also, so you know, Carl, and, and um, while I don't come from a family who uh, um, were psychiatrists, I was a psychiatric nurse. That's how I got my start um, <laughs> in my career. So I worked six years in inpatient psychiatry. Well, you seem up... much too nice, Beth. You <laughs> seem much too nice to have been a psychiatric nurse. And, well, six after six years, I knew it was time to kind of move on from the inpatient setting at least. <laughs> but um, really enjoyed working with uh, clients with dementia in particular um, and other psychiatric disorders. Um, so um, it, it was a great experience and I think has, you know, kind of helped in my career as I've moved more into the, the behavioral health realm as well with my practice. But um, I think we're going to need to practice behavioral health integration because there's just simply not enough behavioral health clinicians out there now. And even fewer of them have experience with older adults, and even fewer of them have experience in post-acute and long-term care settings. Right. Um, and we all know that what may work for a, a, you know, an adolescent or a younger adult is not necessarily going to be appropriate for an older adult in terms of uh, non-pharmacologic interventions approach, as well as you know, farm uh, principles. So. Uh, just to summarize um, Dr. Watson's article, uh, the, the BHI is it's training and, and really empowering primary care providers to address the common psychiatric issues that we see all the time that I think longer ago we used to do a better job of. And then as more specializations proliferated, it kind of got very turfy. Um, so I, I think it's kind of getting more back to basics and where we're providing care where people want it to be. So we're not necessarily sending them out um, to see therapists or even, you know, the lack of having people be able to come in, particularly during COVID was more challenging. And we know that trying to do all behavioral health visits over virtual platforms isn't necessarily working for, um, you know, a lot of our post-acute and long-term care residents. So the key components of uh, behavioral health integration, it's really a systematic assessment and monitoring process that uses key validated measures. So maybe it's depression, maybe it's measures of cognition or behavioral symptoms. And then you're using care navigation really to support the training that the treating or the billing practitioner. And then there's just general oversight by a psychiatric consult. Um, Dr. Watson does a nice job of explaining how this setup already exists in some outpatient primary care settings, and it does have a strong evidence base for um, improving health outcomes, patient satisfaction, and so I think it's, you know, she thinks, and I think as well, it's kind of a, a wonderful time to try this in long-term care. And so the BHI program, she uses chronic care management 
in terms of billing for eligible patients, and that helps to create a revenue stream for her that really adds to um, the sustainability of this type of model. Uh -huh. Tell me a little bit more about that, that sort of navigator uh, component. I'm, I'm a little unclear. Is that somebody that would be like in a, in a central office that would be sort of uh, ensuring that the appropriate services are given or what is that? So it's kind of like a, a consult service. So there, there are regular meetings that happen where you're going over the data, but let's say a clinician shows up and someone is, you know, displaying some new behavioral symptoms that could be a delirium. They're questioning whether or not psychiatric treatment is, is warranted. And it's, from what I understand, it's almost like a hotline where they call the care navigator and um, get additional information and can guide that a practitioner who's on the ground in either doing appropriate screening um, or coming up with a plan for next steps and, and further assessment and treatment. I see. Well, um, I look forward to uh, learning more about that. And I, I hope that, uh, you know, it's a bit of a gap sometimes. I mean, we've got some psychiatrists who come in and um, seem to want to just medicate everybody with antipsychotics off the bat. Others who are so reluctant to prescribe anything, uh, you know, because they sense that's what the facility wants and they want to keep out of hot water with the with the surveyors. Uh, it's difficult to kind of keep the keep the resident, you know, keep the patient front of mind and, and really do what's best for the patient. So I hope this is something that seems promising to try to uh, try to keep that as the primary goal. Absolutely. Yeah. And now, a word from our sponsor. Your residents who have a neurologic condition or brain injury may not be crying because of their depression. It may be pseudo-bulbar effect. For resources related to screening for PBA, please visit pbainfo.org. And now, back to our podcast. Well, great. Well, so next, uh, one of my favorite topics, and thank you for the shout out, Beth, your article on page two about animal-assisted therapy and intergenerational experiences post-acute and long-term care. Uh, I first started taking my Dalmatian on nursing home rounds back in 1995, and other than during the early peak of the pandemic, I've never stopped, and uh, it's kind of one of my claims to fame, at least locally. Uh, and the amount of joy that bringing my dogs brings to others never ceases to amaze and delight me. And th this is really even in patients with advanced dementia. Uh, so um, I, I love this topic. And uh, uh, I think a lot of us who are dog lovers uh, feel the same way. So what did you learn in researching this article? And what can our listeners do to help promote getting animals and kids into our facilities? And I love the picture of the bunnies, by the way. Uh, yeah, that was that was a live on the scene bunny picture from my wonderful day at the the nursing home. So that was a lot of fun. Um, so a, a couple of things, and I'm going to kind of do it in a step approach. If you're considering some type of uh, human animal interaction, whether that's a program, a pet in residence, etc., uh, consider your options. And same thing goes for kind of intergenerational programs. So. Think to yourself if you're focused on, you know, integrating human-animal interaction. Is it a pet who will stay at the facility? That that takes a fair amount of organization, money, time, and staff. 
Or mm. is it having staff bring um, their pets in for visits? Is it having animal assisted therapy visits where you're you know, working with a kind of a pets on wheels, so to speak? For preschool um, kids who may be nearby, are you having them come in on special events? Is it um, uh, daycare visits? Can you host scouting meetings or other meetings with young people in the facility? Um, or are there opportunities for partner programs with middle or high school? So you wanna kind of consider what your options and think about what might be reasonable. Get feedback from stakeholders, talk to your resident council, to families, to the staff, find out what impact this will have so many of us are very fond of animals and kids, but not all of us are. Um, and so you need to also think about the people who may not be interested in participating in something like this. Right. Um, or the ones that are flat out like scared of dogs, which you know, once in a while you see that and, uh, you know, you don't want to get somebody with dementia screaming, you know, that and, and uh, being very afraid that something bad's going to happen to them uh, because there's a poodle walking down the hall. Exactly. And then talk to others in the industry who have done things like this about some of the rewards, but also some of the risks and try to get some information about them, about what it truly takes to operationalize whatever program you're seeking. And then really the next step after that is, and you've probably kind of already done this by, by this point, is identifying your champions and your team, like who is really into this idea and who can really make it happen and making sure that they have adequate resources to do it. And, and then my last kind of parting tip is when you're implementing something new like this, always start small. You can always mm. grow it, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but always start small. And for those of you out there who are, who are interested in learning a little bit more about what a um, kind of an animal assisted therapy visit would be like, um, there's a wonderful, wonderful book um, called A Dog Walked Into a Nursing Home. And I think I've encouraged many people to read it. And I think it's kind of changed the minds of some individuals who had a certain impression of post-acute and long-term care and came away with a very different picture after reading that book. So it's a wonderful, wonderful book. So if you're a dog lover and we know our listeners love older adults and post-acute and long-term care, um, give it a read. It's in paperback. Yeah. And I don't get any money for recommending <laughs> it. Yeah. And this is one think... of my favorite books. Yeah. Well, thanks for the, thanks for the recommendation. Uh, and I just, I, as I think back over, you know, almost 30 years of taking my dogs to nursing homes with me, I mean, I just cannot count the number of stories and just the number of little, little victories and little pleasures that, uh, that that has given. And, you know, it's not fully altruistic, right? I mean, it, even though it slows me down to take the dogs, uh, it, it's still, I mean, it makes your day last a little bit longer, but it makes my day so much better. And uh, uh, it's really been a blessing for me to be able to, uh, you know, to share the dogs and that unconditional love with people. So uh, thanks again for that, that great article. Uh, and I hope some of our listeners will, will try to implement uh, programs of various shapes and sizes. And uh, I, I just think that the payoffs are, are uh, really big. Yeah. So, okay, let's uh, finally, we'll uh, wrap up with the article on page 12 from AMDA's president-elect, Dr. Milta Little. 
this piece seems to confirm that old saying about breakfast being the most important meal of the day, which is not good news for me because I've never been a breakfast eater. And, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I'm not hungry and I just don't believe in eating when I'm not hungry. But, uh, but in any event, it seems that there's actually some evidence that a high protein breakfast is associated with the reduction in the incidence of sarcopenia in our post-acute long-term care population. So first, Beth, maybe remind our listeners what sarcopenia is, and then share your impressions of this article's message. Sure. So sarcopenia is a condition that's characterized by loss of skeletal muscle mass, as well as strength and function. And it, it happened, the incidence of it in, and uh, prevalence of it increases as we age. So it's associated with aging and its primary treatment um, both preventative as well as trying to reverse the impacts of sarcopenia are really twofold, exercise and protein. And it works best when you're using both of them together. Mm. And I think this article was um, set in Japan. And it, while it wasn't done in post-acute and long-term care, it was done in, with community-dwelling older adults. And what they found is that those individuals who had a higher intake of not necessarily more protein, but high quality bioavailable protein at breakfast, um, that that was associated with a 50% lower incidence of low grip strength, which is um, mm. kind of one of the um, operational, uh, operational markers of sarcopenia. And this was over an eight year period. And they did this even after adjusting for baseline grip strength. And interestingly enough, um, there was no association between total daily lunch or dinner protein quality and grip strength. And this mm. is kind of what suggested them um, to say that breakfast protein perhaps may be the most important in maintaining muscle strength and preventing sarcopenia. There were a number of limitations associated with the study. Um, some in terms of measurement, um, some where they didn't really look very closely at the changes in dietary protein intake over time, um, and that the cohort kind of enrolled people who were generally healthier and excluded those that were um, more frail. So it wouldn't necessarily be representative of a, a long-term care population. But it, it did provide some, um, you know, kind of food for thought, so to speak. Hmm. And um, the, the other thing that I, I work on teaching students is that what you're trying to do is spread your protein out during the day. And if you think about 30 grams of protein at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, um, and that if you can couple that with some resistive exercise, either before or after, that protein intake, it real it helps um, exponentially more in terms of um, treating or preventing sarcopenia. Uh, that's really fascinating. And I, I mean, I wonder how that fits in with sort of, you know, these fasting regimens and things like that. But let me just ask you from a simple operational standpoint, where do we get these high quality protein breakfasts? What, <laughs> any, any recommendations about that? Well, if you think about, you know, now this was done in Japan. If you think about um, kind of... Uh, um, the American diet, you know, we may have a English muffin or a bowl of cereal or something that's not really, uh, you know, high in protein. So uh, thinking about a hard boiled egg or cottage cheese, or just kind of changing up what we have at protein at for uh, breakfast that has, you know, protein in it. 
the American diet puts, puts all of our protein predominantly in dinner. Mm. And really what we want is that 30 grams three times a day, rather than trying to hit kind of all 90 um, grams of protein in the evening, because it just doesn't get um, processed. Yeah, well, that, those are great points. And I, I guess, uh, you know, for people like me who aren't breakfast eaters, uh, I suppose something at least in the nature of a, a shake or something that did have uh, high availability protein sources, and it might be something to, to consider. So, yeah, well, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Thank you for that. Um, so before we finish off, I wanted to also briefly mention a few other articles in this issue. Uh, Phyllis Famularo, who's one of Caring's pharmacist editorial board members, has a great piece on page 10 about deprescribing of vitamins and supplements, uh, which always seem like low-hanging fruit when we want to discontinue unnecessary meds, but we don't want to do harm by discontinuing supplements that are actually beneficial. Uh, then there's also a piece by attorney Janet Feldkamp about medical legal aspects of telemedicine, which is always a hot topic and uh, clearly more hot since COVID-19. Uh, then uh, the IDT piece is about orthostatic hypotension in Parkinson's. And uh, then of course, I'm gonna uh, recommend my own on my mind column on page 17 about how my overall stress level has gone down since I stopped watching the news all the time. <laughs> and uh, before we close, do you have any final comments, Beth, or other wisdom to share on these or other articles from this issue? So there, there's another article I'd like to, to bring to everyone's attention, just because I think it's a lot of fun and you can share it with um, students, with trainees, et cetera. It's thinking about a career in post-acute and long-term care. Consider this advice. And we have um, some of um, our well-known uh, AMDA members, Dan Hamowitz, Barb Resnick, um, Jean Manzi, Carl, you're in there, Paige Hector, um, who uh, shared their advice about uh, a career in post-acute and long-term care. It's a, it's a fun article. Um, a lot of other good ones, uh, and um, please, please enjoy the issue and share it with your friends. Yeah. And, you know, on that article, I, I just think uh, we really have sort of a we miss an opportunity, I think. And um, I don't want to point the finger of blame at nursing schools and medical schools and primary care residency programs. But I honestly feel like uh, for some of us, we walk into a nursing home and we're like, this is a really cool place. Um, and so many people have a bad impression of nursing homes because they've really never had the opportunity to uh, step into one and see the kind of magic that occurs there. So um, I, I appreciate uh, anything that will make it a strategy for us to get more people exposed to our care setting and the, the colorful and amazing place it is. So thanks for that. So, okay, that's gonna wrap it up for August, September's Caring on the Go podcast. Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Beth Gallick, and Managing Editor, Tess Bird, Caring for the Ages continues to report and reflect the outstanding work being done by AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and its leaders, members, and communities. Please take a look at the August-September issue, available as always without a paywall at www.caringfortheages.com. And please recommend and share caring with your friends and colleagues. Dr. Gallick, thanks again for spending your time with Caring on the Go. 
And now, until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Caring on the Go. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.